Tollock's regiment stopped in Lavouf to await fresh orders. Tollock knew the town well. He'd received his legal training at the Lavouf University and had worked in the city as a senior law clerk for so many happy years before he was put in charge of an office in Bokri. At the first opportunity when the troops were resting, Tollock slipped out and with full pack, helmet and rifle, jogged all the way to Advocate Schrenzel's office where he'd worked as a law clerk. The best place to telephone Clara to see how his family were doing. Were they safe? Had they escaped the bombing? How was his little Julius coping? He longed to embrace his son so much. But this wasn't his level. The Lebouf he trained and worked in was a bustling city full of elegant shops, restaurants and coffee houses. This town's main street was blocked by crush of overloaded cars, trucks, pushcarts, horse buggies and pedestrians. Columns of troops marching and on trucks and horses moved east away from the war front. All around was honking, shouting, crying, arguing, pushing and shoving. Houses and shops were boarded up, restaurants empty. Tollet knew from the army scuttlebutt that Lvov was on the attacking Germans' radar. He jogged past the chic Svobody Boulevard and Promenade Alley in the park, where he had met Clara when she visited her married sister who lived in Lvov. They strolled there often while they were courting, getting to know each other. Next came the Grand Renook Square Cafe. In the courting days, the cafe had stood opposite a fountain featuring a semi-clad Greek warrior one arm raised in victory. Now the fountain was dry and listless, and a waiter in a long white apron stood like a statue in front of the deserted cafe watching this mass exodus. The other coffee houses were closed. None of these refugees had the time or inclination for a coffee break. It could cost them their lives. The bored waiter yawned, not giving Tollock even a second look. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today, I'm talking to Leon Silva about his new book, The Miracle Typist. It's a story about communication, the value of family and friendship, and of survival during World War II, and it's told from a slightly different point of view. Leon, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me on. The Miracle Typist is a story about Tolek Klings, a soldier in the Polish army in World War II, but it's a story he couldn't really tell himself, although he did try. Why was it so difficult for Tolek to tell his story himself? And Leon, how did the task finally fall to you? Uh, well, uh, we started talking about his story when I was courting his 16-year-old daughter. And we went to their place for lunch on Sunday. Her mother was Italian. So there was a very big Italian lunch and normally one or two bottles of red wine. And I was an Aussie drinking beer guy. I've never had wine. So one glass of Shiraz and I was floating. So then Tolik started telling me about this war experience because I was an amateur writer. I hadn't had anything published yet. He was telling me about the story because he said he wanted to put it in a book eventually for the sake of his grandchildren. So when they asked him, 
What did you do in the war, granddad? He could hand them a copy of the book. So he started telling me these stories and I was just amazed at the experiences that he had, especially the lucky escapes he had on the front lines. Uh, his um, Catholic colleagues used to sink to their knees and cross themselves when he passed because being a Jew had to be protected by the devil. But once the shooting started, they stuck so close to him that he couldn't move because wherever he was, was the luckiest place to be. So he started telling me all these stories and this is 35, 40 years after it happened. So uh, uh, I made a suggestion that we should try and tape record them. So he bought a little foot operated tape recorder and he made notes on this Remington that he bought. It was very similar to the one that he used during the war. And uh, he, read, uh, he read from his notes. We made nine tapes, but I could see he was very uncomfortable with the recording procedure because it's very impersonal. He looked at the machine and he didn't connect to the machine. There was no communication at all. He read it in this flat, unmoving voice. So I stopped that procedure and decided that we were going to continue with conversation. Uh, we, worked, we worked together in fashion. So for many years, we used to meet a couple of nights a week in the factory showroom when everybody had gone home. And this was a very brightly lit room. There was wallpaper, there was like thick bamboo. So we were like isolated from the world. It was almost like we were in a World War II bunker. And he used to reenact all these things that happened to him. Do you think you got a better sense of his experiences by recording it in that way? Uh, with the conversation, it was much, much better, much better. Because he felt very at ease and he, could, he wasn't uh, telling the story, but just passing it on to me. Many times he got up and reenacted some of the some of his miracle escapes in the in the battlefront, and uh, he used to come at, at night and he used to whip out from his pocket uh, original documents and notes he'd made, and me like an opposing gunslinger used to whip out questions that I had for him to ask him. He was a hoarder. He kept all these amazing amazing documents. I was annoyed. It was like uh, Indiana Jones looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls because he unfolded them and the the joints were like they had arthritis because they were so old when he uncreaked them. I was too scared to touch them. I thought I should wear gloves. But he had the most amazing documents. He substantiated this whole story. He kept everything. So after, after some years, I made a rough draft of it. And when he read it, he was amazed that he actually read the story. And he said, yes, you know, he said, this story really has to be told. So this sounds like quite a process for Tolek, uh, in a way, a, a bit of an unburdening for him. Was that the sense you got? Unburdening is exactly the right word to use. Most of the story had been sanitized from a younger consumption. There were a couple of episodes that he didn't tell me for many years. One was his meeting with some people he called the Modena speakers in a, in a town called Modena, Northern Italy, when the war was finished. And there was another one uh, that, uh, of something that happened to him in the Hungarian woods when the war started, when he was robbed. Those things he didn't even tell his wife and his daughter, but he did eventually tell them to me. And I remember clear as anything today, which is, you know, even 40 years after that, that he stood up and he like decided, tell it to Leon. And he started telling me these two episodes. And when he finished, it was like a film lifted from his eyes, like a curtain had raised because he felt he was vindicated. He had passed the baton on to me. It was now in my hands. As I was reading The Miracle Typist, I was always aware of Tolek's voice in the narrative. What approach did you take to ensure that his voice constantly came through in the book? 
when he told me his story, it was like I was watching a video. I was watching a series on Netflix. All I had to do is write down what I saw. That, and all I did, that's all I did. I just relayed what he told me. I didn't have to uh, change a lot because I just told the story as he told me. I went and I did this and I did that and I did the other. And this happened to me and he said this and I said this and they said this. And uh, uh, it, it was just retelling of a story. In The Miracle Typist, although many letters, telegrams, postcards and money orders were sent, only a very few got through. Some of these only contained a few words. And one of the things that comes to mind is this thing that you refer to as the miracle telegram. Did you get a sense through his telling of the preciousness that Tolek held in communication and maintaining the links to his family and friends as he told the story? This is a very good point because we live today in a world of communication. I mean, we in Melbourne are totally locked down now, but we can telephone, we can text, we can FaceTime, we can do anything. We can contact anyone anywhere in Melbourne, Australia, around the world, no problem. But during that war, the communication was very, very difficult. Even before the war, communication was difficult. Not everybody had a telephone. You had to ring long distance if you were out of the area. And uh, so you mostly communicated with telegrams. But once the uh, Russians marched in and occupied Eastern Poland, when the Germans marched in and took Western Poland, they cut off all communication for, this, for, for security, and to, you know, to stop any information getting out through spies. So it was very, very difficult. He continuously tried to send telegrams, letters, uh, uh, money orders, nothing, nothing arrived, nothing. He, he was lucky that he got a letter from his wife, Clara, when he was in the Hungarian internment camp that miraculously got through to him, to telling him what the position was like under the Russian occupation. And then he got this unbelievable, amazing telegram, a real miracle telegram that she sent from uh, Russian-occupied Poland in a German war zone to arrive in the British mandate of Palestine, their sworn enemies. How it ever got through, nobody knew. Communication was the most difficult part because when we think of those times in retrospect, we know what happened. We know what happened to the civilians during World War II. But these soldiers had no idea. There was no communication. The Polish army didn't pass on information because they didn't want the Jewish soldiers to desert. So they wanted to make sure that everything was fine. As you read in the book, the only way he got any information was he made friends with a journalist for the Polish army newspaper called the White Eagle. He was a very, very prominent journalist. He had good contacts in the Polish government of exile in London, who of course had very good contacts in the Polish underground called the Home Army. So, uh, this uh, Jan Bielatovic's name was, he was an ardent anti-Semite to start with. They had some unbelievable uh, hostile discussions. But after a while, because they were corporals and they shared the same tent, they actually became friends. They started helping each other continuously. So uh, uh, Jan was very tuned in to uh, Tolik's uh, desperation to get information. And he actually managed to get him three different communication from his wife during the wartime. It was unbelievable how he did that. Leon, I want to ask you how Tolek actually earned the title, The Miracle Typist. Well, when, when uh, uh, the war was lost for Poland, the, the army uh, crossed the border into Hungary. They were put in the Hungarian internment camp. Tolek and two Polish friends escaped. They went to Budapest, then they went to Yugoslavia. He kept trying to rejoin the army because he wanted to fight for the fatherland. 
He wanted to come zooming down the, the main road of Popke in a, in a Jeep, and his family would be waiting for him with Lawrence, you know, the, the typical ending that we see in war movies. He managed to rejoin the army in Yugoslavia, and they were shipped to Lebanon to join the Free French Forces. When they arrived in Lebanon, they were, they were they unloaded on the beach, and there was an announcement made. The office needed typists to uh, process all the new soldiers. So only three men from the whole uh, 2,000 people or something stepped forward. One of them was Tolly. So they put him in front of a typewriter, and he asked the sergeant to tell him to a child of Ditti. So the, the sergeant started talking, and Tolly looked at him while he typed. And the, the sergeant, couldn't, he yelled out, Captain, come in here. There's a man who makes miracles. He looks at me while he's typing. So the captain came in, he yanked the sheet out, he read it, he said, you're the miracle typist. So Tolle kept looking at him and he typed, I am the miracle typist. And he took out the page to show it to him. And that's the moniker that stuck to him through six years of war. Even the officers called him the miracle typist most of the time. Hardly anyone called him Tolle Klings. As a Polish Jew, Tolek was forced to deal with a, an enormous number of difficult people and many of them harboring a good deal of prejudice. At the same time, somehow Tolek was able to find good people and build strong relationships. What do you put that down to? Well, uh, he was a very friendly guy, very easy to get on with. He wanted to do the best of his time in the army. And there were many Poles who weren't prejudiced. Many Poles who just judged him by what he was. Like uh, when they escaped from the internment camp in Hungary, he knew that a Jew on his own wouldn't be able to do any good when he was out on his own in the wilderness, you know, try, trying to get to uh, Budapest. So he recruited two Polish friends, Catholics, and they were all equal and they liked him and he liked them. In fact, they called him the fixer because he had to make arrangements with the Jewish family to supply them clothes when they went through the sewers to be able to clean themselves up, supply them, drive them to the train station. So there were many Poles who were actually friends. The, the, the important point is that when you get to know your enemy, you find they're very similar to you. So he made quite a lot of good friends. In the course of the book, Tolek is also faced with making a lot of critical decisions. Many of them are life or death decisions. He, he always seemed to make good decisions. Did he ever express any regret over any of those decisions? He made the best decisions at the time, weighing up everything that he knew, all the information he knew, and the best chances of how his family would survive. Now, his father was a soldier in the First World War, and civilians did all right during the First World War because it was largely a war between soldiers, you know, fighting up, fighting in trenches in fields, attacking each other. But civilians seemed to cope all right. So he figured that the family might be right, especially in the early part when they were occupied by the Russians, where there was no prejudice against Jews. I mean, life was hard. You had to get food stamps and all that. But they survived. Once the uh, non-aggression pact was broken by the Germans and they attacked Russia, and Russia retreated out of Poland to defend Russia, it became a much more difficult time. But again, he had to continuously weigh up, should I defect or should I stay with the army? He wanted to stay with the army because he wanted to fight to the end. He wanted to fight, beat the Nazis, and you know, arrive in uh, Poland as a victorious soldier. So he had to make all these decisions, weigh up this side and weigh up this side. And uh, uh, sometimes he thought, should have done this or that, but largely he felt that he did the right decision. And of course, Tolek finally arrived in Australia in 1952. And it just made me think about a passage where 
Tolik refers to the drinking of beer. So I think the passage goes something like this. Tolek decided to stick to beer despite not being a beer drinker. To him, the cold beer seemed stifled. It had no expression. How did he go with beer in Australia? It's, it's the land of very cold beer. What did you think that, about that? that? That's a very good point. And in fact, Tolik brought it up in one of our sessions late night. Uh, it took him a long time to get used to the cold beer because he said that that less taste because the taste was frozen. In the pub, it was served room temperature. But he said it had a huge upside because here in the pub, when you order a drink, you've got to put the money on the counter. He says, in the pub at home, you didn't pay until you finished drinking. And when some of his uh, Polish customers, they got very drunk and they didn't have any money, there was nowhere to make them pay. All they had to do is they could call the constable and then the constable made the customer promise, yes, I'll pay tomorrow, I'll come and pay tomorrow. So he said he loved the Australian pub system pub system even if the even if the beer was cold thank you leon thank you for joining me on the good reading magazine podcast thanks for having me on i've been talking to leon silver about his book the miracle typist it's published by simon and schuster and it's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores my name's greg dobbs and thanks for listening